Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsnetwork.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And lots of activity in the technology world this week. Cord cutting has hit another record. More and more people are Mm -hmm. dropping their video entertainment plans. We finally have some security standards for the Internet of Things. These are all the devices that attach to the Internet, like your microwave oven or your refrigerator or your smoke detector or your front door. How do you secure (laughs) these things so that they don't get hacked? We needed those standards for quite a while. Russia is banning smartphones for their soldiers. They had the same problem with security that U.S. military had. And Facebook just keeps getting in more and more trouble. They're thinking they're they're really too big to care about privacy. Lots of bad stuff going on there. This week we're going to feature a woman who wrote an operating system for the first personal computer, the Link, L-I-N-C. She did, did pioneering work on this operating system. This was back when they said programming is women's work. And the men do the hardware. So we're going to take a back a step in time to see how Mary Allen Wilkes navigated that world and the technical accomplishments that she achieved. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Oh, very good. We got an email from Tom Schum. Dear Doc and Jim, you explained inertial propulsion incorrectly. It's more like a bicycle that works in space. It's not anything like a perpetual motion machine. You have to pedal the bicycle to get anywhere, Tom Shum. Well, thanks for the feedback, Tom. Um, Yeah, these perpetual motion machines are based on kind of an asymmetric spinning wheel that vibrates, and then the motion is rectified, pushing it all in one direction, sort of like an AC signal can be rectified to be a DC signal. Okay. So the theory is that such rectification produces thrust in one direction. Skeptics say this violates Newton's third law, but some people are saying Newton's third law might have to be modified. So this is an area of Mm -hmm. active research, and people are uh, disagreeing on whether inertial propulsion actually would work. We got an email from Sharon in Richmond. Dear Doc and Jim, I was curious about the Windows 10 operating system. What's the difference between Windows and Windows Server. They look the same to me. Love the show. Sharon Richmond. Well, Microsoft offers a Windows desktop and a Windows Server version, and they look very, very similar. I mean, in fact, if you would load a clean copy of Windows 10 and Windows Server 2016, it'd be easy to confuse the two. They've got the same desktop, same start button, even have they the same task view buttons. They use the same kernel, and they can run the same software. But the similarities end there. 
Windows 10 is for a desktop machine that you sit in front of and work on applications like Microsoft Word. Windows Server has other options. With Windows Server, actually, many times you don't even use the graphical user interface with Windows Server. You just use the services that are available in the server edition. So the Windows Server has additional services on there like Windows Deployment Services, DHCP for assigning IP addresses, Active Directory Domain Services. These are used for managing other machines. Um, now, you could get these features in a Windows 10, but not natively. You'd have to install a third-party software package like Apache Web Server. Windows Server also supports server message blocks for faster file sharing and greater support of the resilient file system. You only get that in the server edition. So the server is significantly different than the actually the desktop Windows. In addition, it supports more powerful software. Windows 10 Pro has a maximum limit of 2 terabytes of RAM, and Windows Server allows for 24 terabytes. Now, the desktop user is unlikely to really ever need that much RAM, but the server uses a lot because they're, they're running many virtual machines through Hyper-V. So there's a difference, but at the surface, they look very similar. We got an email from Lois in Kansas. I'm thinking of getting an inkjet printer to print pictures that I take on my cell phone. I was wondering whether the picture, whether printing the pictures myself is any cheaper than going through a service. What's your opinion, Lois in Kansas? Well, well, actually, it's probably cheaper to have a service do that. Let's let's run through the numbers. Let's just for the sake of uh, convenience, let's talk about four by six prints. Shutterfly, one of the most popular photo printing services, charged twelve cents for a four by six print. Well, as Amazon, Snapfish, and Walmart will all print your 4x6 photos for $0.09 cents each. Now, let's see how much it costs you to print it. Let's suppose you got a Canon Prixma IP8070 printer to print your photos. That's a, It's a really a good photo printer. It's about $180. A set of ink cartridges is $55, and Canon alleges that that will print 780 photos. But, yeah, I think that's questionable. But let's just go with 780. That means it costs you seven cents of ink for each four by six print. Then you have to buy paper. And let's suppose you get the pack of 400 sheets for $20. That's five cents a sheet. So in addition to the $180 print cost, you're paying 12 cents for every four by six photo. Now, of course, that's idealistic. You never get that many pictures out of the out of one print cartridge because you know if you don't print a lot of pictures, your print cartridges die. You've got to replace it sooner. I've never hit that max limit. So the cheapest is going to be 12 cents a print, and it's probably going to be more than that. So the only advantage of printing them at home, and I do have a, a printer at home, is that you can print it immediately. So we've got so we'll have guests come over, we take pictures, and we can print a, a picture and just give it to them right away. So. I think it's nice to be able to print pictures, but if you're printing a lot of pictures, I'd send them off to a file service to, to print it. That means Periscope's back up. Oh, Periscope's <laughs> Periscope. back up. There we go. I'm good to hear that. Things are things are coming back online here. We've got an email from Dennis in Oklahoma. Dear Tech Talk, I just bought a new router, and it supports both 5 gigahertz and 2.4 gigahertz. What's the best one to use? Dennis in Alexandria. Well... You know, Wi-Fi can run on two different bands. These are basically un unlicensed bands. One is a 5 gigahertz band. The other was the 2.4 gigahertz band. It turns out that 5 gigahertz is the newest one. It went mainstream when they came out with 802.11n standard. And it is very good. It's faster. 
And it oper- and, and there's less congestion. You don't have as many other people on the 5 gigahertz band, so you'll have less interference. But, but it doesn't penetrate through walls as well as the 2.4 gigahertz band. So if you've got to cover a large area and you don't have too many people around you, the 2.4 gigahertz band is would be best. So I'd say if you're in an apartment house with a lot of neighbors around there, you're going to want to have the 5 gigahertz band. You'll have less we, interference. We have we have proven that to be the case. That is with exactly, my own personal experience. Right? That's exactly right. Then if you get up, if you go to 2.4 gigahertz, you can you can cover a, a broader area. Now, I don't like my router to switch back and forth. You know, to go from 2.4 to 5, always picking the best one. So if you if you name both bands with the same uh, SSID. Your, your cell phone or your d- detection device d- d- decides which band it has based on which, uh, which signal is stronger. And I like to pick one or the other. So I actually go into my router and I name the 5 gigahertz has with one name, 2.4 gigahertz with another name. And when I decide to attach to a network, I pick which one I want depending on, depending on the situation. And I, I set this – it's the same password for both of them, so that's not an issue. And you, you go back and forth. But typically – if you are in an area where you do not have a lot of interference and you've got a big house to cover, you're probably better at 2.4 gigahertz. We got an email from Paula in Kansas. Dear Tech Talk, can you suggest some low-cost or free options to learn coding on my own? I love computers and think I could learn a lot in my free time. Love the show, Paula in Kansas. Well, learning how to code is no longer just for IT professionals. Here, you know, you can, you know, they they expect, you know, everybody's expected to know how to code a little bit, even if you're just coding and coding an application in Microsoft Excel. So here are just a few free sites that are pretty good. Treehouse is pretty good. They've got over a thousand videos that have been created by experts on web design, coding. You practice what you've learned by taking quizzes and completing interactive coding challenges. Now, you can sign up for that for $25 a month, or you can get the pro plan for $49 a month. Khan Academy is completely free. Now, the Khan Academy has all sorts of – it's got personalized dashboards, practice exercises, instructional video. There are courses for beginners that don't know where to start, and they go all the way up to professional level. You don't pay anything for the Khan Academy. It's a really a great resource. Then you've got Code School. This is a, a learning destination for those who are aspiring or experienced developers. So this is a little bit more advanced. Students can choose different tracks, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, Ruby, Elixir, PHP, .NET, Python, iOS, Git, SQL. These are all some of the options. And um, if you want to sign up for Code School, it's around $29 a month. EDX is, an on, is a leading online learning platform. It's not-for-profit. It's open source, founded in... 2012 by MIT and Harvard, EDX has over 90 partners around the world. It's open source and available free. They've got a lot of great coding courses there. Coursera is pretty good. That's matured into a fairly large for-profit educational company. It offers over 1,000 courses from 119 institutions. Courses are normally four to six weeks, and you pay between $29 and $99 per course. And then Udacity is a way to also get online courses. Now, these online courses, they've got a JavaScript course for free. They've got a few free courses on Audacity, but then the more intense courses have a, have a nominal fee. They also have something at Audacity called nano degrees, where you can put together a group of courses to get a nano degree in a particular area. So those are four, those are six options that I gave you. There are a lot more, but those are six pretty good ones that you could start out to learn coding on your own. 
Listen, we love your emails. Do Email indeed. us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio some of the time on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2. You can watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. Be right back. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Mary Allen Wilkes. Mary Allen Wilkes is best known for designing the operating system for the Link computer. This was a computer. This stands for the Laboratory Instrument Computer, Link Computer. It's now recognized by many as the world's first personal computer. Mary Allen Wilkes was born September 25, 1937 in Chicago, Illinois. She graduated from Wellesley College in 1959 where she majored in philosophy and theology. Now, her goal in, in having that particular major, she wanted to become a lawyer. But as she was going to school, back in those days, they said, you know, a woman in law school is not going to be successful. You won't get a job. You'll probably just be a law clerk. They said, forget law. It's not, it's not right for women yet. And she remembered then her high school, her grade school, eighth grade geography teacher had told her, uh, Mary, you should become a computer programmer. At the time, she didn't even know what you know what computer programming what that really meant. But then she thought, you know, okay, why don't I just give that a shot? So when she graduated from Wellesley, instead of applying to law school, she had her parents drive her to the MIT employment office, and she walked in and she says, "Do you have any jobs for computer programmers?" She just walked in off the street, and back then. There was no formal way to, to get computer programming training. There were no courses in it. There was nothing in it. So what they would tend to do, they would just t- tend to test whether you could think logically. 
And it turned out because she had taken all of these logic courses and she knew how to create arguments and inferences by stringing together a lot of and or statements that resembled coding that they said, okay, looks like you've got the ability to do that. So she was hired as a computer programmer by MIT. Now, back then, they viewed computer programming as women's work. It was like being a typist. And the men built the hardware. So the men built the hardware, and she was writing the code for it. And so, and she became a programming whiz. First, she worked on the IBM 704, and she had to write assembly language. And for that thing, in the 704, IBM 704 can only handle 4,000 words of code in its memory. So every command had to be concise. It had to be elegant. She, she looked at it almost like writing poetry. It had to be so beautifully constructed to be minimum in space. Now, she wrote her programs on paper back then because there was no interactive computer. Then they would get this. She would give the paper to a secretary who would then type in the, on the punch cards. And then the punch cards then were batch processed to see whether the program ran. This brought back big memories to me. I did. I used punch cards, except I didn't have a secretary punching my punch cards. I, I'm afraid were, I was my own secretary. You were probably a student back then, right? Yeah, I was a student there, and I was just sitting at that card punch machine punching my own, punching my own cards. I can't imagine having a secretary do that. But, but that's what they did because it was very, very you know structured that way. So uh, and so, she became very adept at uh, at writing programs for this hardware. Then at Lincoln Labs, they decided to build a smaller, more portable personal computer. They call it the Laboratory Instrument Computer, Link, L-I-N-C. And they and this they they decided this would be small enough that it could fit into a an, a single office or a or a single lab. And it had something that was super innovative. It had its own keyboard and screen. So you could actually input information directly into the computer and look at it on the screen. This was at that time, this is 1961 now, at that time that was super, super innovative. And of course, the men said, Mary Ellen, we will build the hardware, but we need somebody who's going to write the code for the operating system. So she ended up writing the entire operating system system for this link computer, which turned out to be a, you know, a major undertaking. Now, while they were building the hardware, she simulated its behavior. She wrote a simulation program that simulated how the link hardware would work as, as, they, were, as they were building it. And, uh, and then uh, she – and the original link had a, had a word. They, they could store 10 – 24 words, 10, 24, 12-bit words in this in the in the link computer. So it, it didn't have a lot of memory, and um, and so she was working on this. Now that group that designed the link machine, they left the M that MIT department. They moved uh, in 1964 to the Computer Systems Laboratory in Washington University in St. Louis, and uh, you know that summer, uh, Mary Ellen Link Wilkes, she just you know toured around. She took a big toured of the, the world for, for a few months, and then she rejoined the team in late 1964 at, at the new location. But this time she says, look, I'm not going to work out of uh, St. Louis because I do all my coding anywhere I want. I want to work I want to work remotely. Get this. So they gave her a Lynx computer 
and she put it in her parents' home in Baltimore. Now, this Lynx <laughs> computer was about the size of a small refrigerator, and her dad was so proud of it. I got pictures of her. They have the Lynx computer sitting beside the ma- she she worked she made the foyer of the house her office. They had the Lynx computer sitting beside the uh, stairway that went upstairs. And her dad would would bring people in to show them this personal computer in their house. So this was this you, you go on to Wikipedia. This is like the first personal computer that was in the house. But she was doing extremely innovative things. They they did in 1965. They doubled the size of the uh, of the uh, of the memory to to to, to 2048 12-bit words, and that enabled Wilkes to develop a more sophisticated operating system called the LAP6. Now this was truly innovative. Uh, it would allow you to prepare, edit, and manipulate documents interactively. So you could actually see something on the screen, scroll down to it. You could manip- manipulate the document. This was like super innovative. And then she wrote the whole operating system for this. They had magnetic tapes. And as you would scroll down on the screen, uh, her operating system would actually scroll through the tape, you know, to sort of go what you were doing. And then if you were going to write a program, you could actually edit what you see on the screen and it would save it in real time to the tape. She wrote yeah, a complete operating record. system for this, so it was really quite, quite, uh, quite sophisticated. Now you could you could take linked tapes, you could swap them or share programs, and that was like an early open source capacity. Now then the group went on to de- develop macro modules. These are computer building blocks that made it ar- larger to build large scale applications. And she wrote the most complex uh, macro modules. Now, by 1972, you know, she started there in 60, 60, uh, when she graduated, 61 is when she started there, you know, doing her coding. And then in 72, she left. That was after 11 years. She left and went back to law school, her true (laughs) dream. She practiced as a trial lawyer for many years, both in private practice as head of the Economic Crime and Consumer Protection Division of Massachusetts in 2001, she became an arbiter for the American Arbitration Association. So there you go, Mary Allen Wilkes, the woman who wrote the operating system for what is now known as the first personal computer, everything you'd ever want to know about her. And I hope you're paying attention because your chance to turn that knowledge into free lunch comes up when we play the pop quiz in just a moment here on Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday at 9 or thereabouts on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2 and 103.9 FM HD2. Watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. You can sit down now. Yeah, please. Sit down, please. Calm down. As you know, this is not only a radio show, no. it's a classroom of the airways. Yes. And as such, we have to do a learning outcomes assessment to see whether you've been learning anything. We do that with a pop quiz. If you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get some tickets to fine dining at one of our Stratford University dining rooms. And you'll also get an A-plus for today's show. Now, earlier in the show, I was talking about Mary Allen Wilkes. She had originally wanted to go into law, but then everyone said, said, Mary Ellen, just don't go into law. It's not a, it's a man's world, not a woman's world. So she decided to get into computer programming. What gave her the idea to even look at computer programming? Well, okay. Where is my boy? Nope. Hang on a second. We're going to do this the hard way. Okay. All right. Hang on. Where is he? Now. We can just give the number. We could do we could do that or yeah. we could do this because I do have Mr. Big Voice here okay. in an alternate if you area. know the answer to today's question, well now is the time for you to pick up your device and contact us. Disclaimer, we may or may not be able to take your call. <laughs> if you're dialing from Western Washington, <laughs> it's eight seven seven nine three six nine three three three. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're thinking about warmer days while sitting in a snowdrift in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. If the local lines don't work, try us on the international line, 877-9-3639-333. And now, once again, Dr. Richard Schertz. Okay, your turn. And, of course, if you want to reach us from Karachi, they're standing by the sea. You can simply connect to Tech Talk Radio 1, and your call will come through free of charge on Skype. Listen, cord cutting has hit another record. Over 850 pay TV customers dropped their service in the fourth quarter of 2018. The rate of consumers dropping their cable and satellite TV packages hit the highest level in the last three months of 2018, total TV paid subscribers dropped 4.1% from the year earlier. It looks like that pay TV is becoming unraveled as people decide to forget those expensive bundles. 
Providers like Google, Google's YouTube TV or AT&T's DirecTV Now raise prices slightly to account for higher cost charge by cable programmers. So the subscriber growth in that area slowed a bit. But it's looking like this is this is a this is a train that's not going to be stopped. People are getting off of those high-cost cable TV programs. Europe gets its first consumer Internet of Things security standard. The European Telecommunications Standards Institute (ETSI) released a standard for cybersecurity on the Internet of Things. This is long overdue. This is we've really needed this. The new specification seeks to establish security baseline for Internet-connected consumer products that provide a basis for future IoT certification. I think this security certification is very important. ETSI said the scope covers uh, consumer Internet of Things products such as uh, children's toys connected to the Internet, baby monitors, smoke detectors, door locks, smart cameras, TVs, speakers. Wearable health trackers, connected home automation and alarm systems, appliances like washing machines and fridges, or smart home assistants. A poorly secured product threatens the consumer's privacy. And in some cases, the devices are exploited to launch large-scale distributed denial-of-service attacks, where they use your device to attack somebody else. ETSI said that this standard requires the company's Get rid of the universal default password, which has been one of the big problems in this thing. And also that they provide a way to re report vulnerabilities and that they have a way to automatically update software with security patches. These were all things that were missing. And it's time, finally, that we have some standards in that general area. The specifications are also expected to help ensure compliance with the general data Protection Regulation, GDPR, according to the Standards Group. We're just checking. We're, we're just updating the winner hotline. Okay. Update, no winner. Why don't you ask the question yes, again? Yes, earlier we were... in the show, I, of course, was talking about Mary Ellen Wilkes. Mary Ellen Wilkes, uh, of course, she, was, uh, she designed the operating system for the Link computer, which is the world's first personal computer. She was going to be a lawyer, and then she decided, after she graduated from Wellesley, to just go and apply for a job as a computer program. What a computer programmer? Whatever gave her the idea that she should become a computer programmer? What or whoever? Who gave her that idea? 877-936-9333. 877-936-9333. So Russia banned smartphones for soldiers. Now, the Russian parliament has voted to ban soldiers from using smartphones while on duty. Now, now here, and that you know, this is the problem. They were posting, uh, they were posting stuff on social media. They were using their tablets, their laptops, their phone. They were taking pictures. The pictures would have like, uh, like GPS location on them, and it was turning that it was embarrassing for the Russian officials because they would say things like, "Well, we don't have any troops in uh, in a, in a particular country." And all of a sudden, there'd be all these social media posts with GPS locations from Russian activity in that country. And so they said, this is really a security breach. The U.S. service had the same problem with uh, this. So they've said, look, you can only have dumb phones with you. You, you can have a phone and you can send text messages. But you can't have, it cannot have a camera and it cannot have Internet access. It can just be a straight cellular phone. They're also putting controls on, you know, whether whether they well, on tablets and anything else that could actually reveal where they're going. 
You know, Facebook just seems to be getting in more and more trouble every day as we go. And it, and it really comes down to the fact that they have not used our data ethically. So people have started studying them. And this is what they did. Two years ago, there was a law Yale School student who published what became an influential paper about how antitrust should be applied to Facebook. He was basically saying they are so big that people people cannot regulate the, you know, that how they use the data. Then recently there was another academic paper that came out that uh, that basically outlined on a time frame the extreme abuse of power that Facebook had done, and it was titled "The Antitrust Case Against Facebook." Now this is what Facebook does. In the beginning, when they have competitors, like, say, in the early years, when Facebook competed against, uh, say, MySpace, what they would tell people was, look, we protect your data. We give you privacy. And they made all these commitments on privacy and data protection. But as soon as they drove MySpace out of business, they reversed it. Hmm. They reversed the promises. And everything that, th that they said they would do, or would not do, they just they did. did. A complete reversal once they had the power to do it. Now, here's another example. Remember when they put out this like and share buttons? You, you know, you, you go to some place, not on a, on a Facebook page, but it, you'll, have a, you'll have a Facebook like or a Facebook share on somebody else's website. Now, in the beginning, when there were a lot of social media operators out there putting like and share buttons out there, Facebook said, look, we will never ever use that data. Not ever. Wrong. We are going to protect that to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. Then, as soon as they dominated the like and share button space, they just announced that, well, maybe we, we will use that for, you know, ad tracting. And everything that they promised in the beginning, they just reneged on. And they've done that consistently over and over and over again. So Facebook has a pattern of bait and switch tactics surrounding data harvesting. And somebody's going to have to bring them under control because they clearly don't have the ethics to do it. And more and more people are seeing that and calling a spade a spade. Doc, okay. let's march into the great All right. unknown world of the phone lines. What do you say we go to line number one? This is Steve calling us from Greenbelt, Maryland. Steve, are you there? Steve, can you hear us? Wait a minute. There we go. Yes. Hey, Steve, can you hear us? Steve? Yes. Oh, oh, there you go. Okay. The phone lines have worked for the All first right. time in this studio. Okay, Steve. Uh, Doc, go ahead and ask us a question. Yeah, Earlier, we had Mary Ellen Wilkes. We featured on uh, Profiles in IT. Who recommended that she become a computer programmer? Her eighth grade teacher. That, that is, is correct. correct answer. Correct. That is very good. Steve, thank you very much. You are now our first successful winner from here in the brand new studios yes. in Friendship Heights overlooking downtown Chevy Chase, Maryland. Hang on a second. We're going to put you back on hold and give you back to uh, Andrew, who's going to take your information, and we'll send the prize out to you. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio. It is Saturday morning. And you're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, and 103.9 FM HD2. You can watch us through the program by downloading uh, uh, the, uh, what do you call it, the Periscope device, right? That's Periscope what it is. app. Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. We'll be right back in just a minute.
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. There was a massive cyber attack on an email provider, and 18 years' worth of data were destroyed. Mm. This was on VF Email. And the um, and they they actually described the attack on their on their website. According to the website, an unknown person destroyed all the data in the U.S. in both the primary and the backup systems. Now, VF Email was established in 2001 and provides free and paid email services, including bulk email services in the U.S. and elsewhere. The attack, described in a series of tweets from the firm, in a series of tweets from the firm, seems to have occurred on Monday. Uh, two weeks ago, and it targeted all VF emails externally facing services across all data centers. And though the servers were running different operating systems and not all shared the same, same authentication, the attacker managed to access each and every one of them and then reformat them all at exactly the same time. Now, the firm apparently caught the perpetrator reformatting the VF email backup hosts that are hosted in the Netherlands. And by the time the attacker had already, had already, they had already, you know, lost most of those backups before they stopped them. The attacker sent no ransom notes and appears not to have made any attempt to contact me via email. It just was a attack and destroy. So what is the system here? You got to really watch your authentication. You should always have some of your backups in cold storage so they cannot be accessed. And apparently all their backups were hot, not in cold storage, and they were available. This is like a nightmare security problem. Scientists just solved the mystery of zebra stripes. Okay, this this may not be exactly tech talk, but I'm gonna bring it around to physics in the end, Jim. So just just be aware, just just be, you know, patient with me here. We've all asked the question, why do zebras have stripes? You ever ask that question, you know? You know, I was just thinking that the other day. Yeah. Doc, why do zebras I, have stripes? That's right. I and mean, not dots. I know, they're not dots. I or mean, they, chevrons. It could be to hide from predators. It could be to stay cool. It could be to attract a mate. But we well, really don't know. But they, it actually makes them stand out more. 
It does make because stand most out. camouflaged animals are sort of like earth tones. I know they just they do stand out. So researchers at the um, at the uh, at Bristol University of Bristol and UC Davis think they've come up with the answer. So they ran uh, they ran an experiment and they looked at these zebras when they were being attacked by tabanid horseflies. These are very large horse flies that that live in the area where the zebras work and it and and they and they had the zebras there and they had and they had horses nearby and it turns out that when the horse fly gets close to the zebra because of its low resolution lens it gets confused and it doesn't land on the stripes and so it just flies over the zebra and so fewer horse flies would land on the back of the zebra when they had the stripes, but they would land right on the back of a horse that was nearby that, that didn't have stripes. So then they said, well, let's just validate whether this makes sense. <laughs> so then they took the horse and they put uh, a um, sort of a, a covering over it, like a, like a coat that had stripes. So then they had the horse walking around stripes on. Sure enough, <laughs> the horse flies would not land on the, on the horse whenever they would get close. And it turns out that in Africa, a lot of these horseflies carry very serious diseases. Yeah, sure. So kind of as evolution— Like, like mosquitoes here, yeah. right? So as evolution, they, they, they developed this defense against horseflies. Now, let me tell you why I even brought up this story. Doc, I was just wondering, why did you bring this up? <laughs> it doesn't sound like IT does it. But, no, uh, but it, it sounds was, like It was interesting to me. It, it was interesting to me. Okay, it turned out—you remember Alan Turing— Yes. Alan Turing is the guy that uh, he was a, a great computer scientist. He hastened the end of World War II by solving the Enigma code, which so we could hack into uh, into the Nazis, uh, you know, secret codes and see what they were up to. Well, he got this idea because he was a he was a great mathematician. He figured out an a very interesting model that will that can be used be two interacting molecules that can interact with each other to produce all kinds of patterns. So he created a mathematical model for pattern formation. Now his theory outlined how an endless variety of stripes, spots, scales could emerge from the interaction of two simple hypothetical chemical agents called morphogens. Now, decades passed. Nobody really paid attention to him. They said, what's this guy? He's a computer guy. What does he know about biology? And then they went back and they started looking at this morphogen theory. And they said, you know, he's got some elegant idea that probably has been implemented by nature. So this technique of two interacting morphogens is responsible for all kinds of patterns, whether it could be feathers on birds, ridges on the roof of your mouth, you know, patterns in, uh, you know, alligator skin, they're all over the place. Mm -hmm. Now, Turing's model called, it's called a reaction diffusion mechanism, and it's elegantly simple. It requires just two interacting agents. One is an activator, and the other one's an inhibitor that diffuse through the tissue like ink dropped in water. And the activate, activator initiates some process or some color, and then a little bit later, the inhibitor stops it. And depending on the phase and the distribution of the activator and the inhibitor, you can get all kinds of patterns, stripes and everything else. And so now they're going back and saying, look how nature, through its elegant simplicity, has evolved a way to make patterns. And so that's where I'll bring it back, you know, because Turing was a great, now he, he was a, you know, he was a, a, you know, great man in computers. So I thought mm -hmm. it, would, it does have a tie to technology in the end. Gotcha. Let's do another item here before we take a break. Okay. Now, Microsoft is helping retailers compete with Amazon. You know, 
one of the problems, Amazon just, t- just taken the world by storm, and now they're even getting into brick and mortar. They've, they've got, you know, they bought... They bought Whole Foods, and now they're getting into Amazon Go. They're, you know, they're just they're just driving businesses out of business as they scale unmercifully to larger and larger size. Well, Microsoft is helping regular stores compete with Amazon. So, Microsoft and Kroger, for instance, this is one of their first things, announced a plan for new technology to streamline the process of finding and purchasing items in a traditional grocery store. Microsoft showed off the smart shelves that it developed with Kroger. They have digital displays that update prices dynamically and show personalized icons to help shoppers find items. Microsoft displayed a series of e-ink tags or QR codes so customers can learn more about the item just by pointing their cell phone at it. The program is called Microsoft Synchronized Shopping, and it aims to bridge the gap between the digital and the physical store. It attaches a code to an item in the store that communicates with the company's website. That way, a customer looking at the site can see if an item is in stock and available in a demo store. Microsoft gave examples of companies using the service to track inventory, manage last-mile deliveries. Kroger and Microsoft recently agreed to a major partnership with Walmart last year to include joint to include a joint engineering center that will work on both IT and the Internet of Things. School, you know, companies are trying to, to you know, fight back with Amazon because Amazon is like a juggernaut just going mm-hmm. over and over and over. Yes, it is. It is Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio. This is Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2. You can watch us do the program. Download the Periscope device to your – Periscope app to your device – and follow us at WFED Tech Talk. This is WFED Washington, WTOP FM HD2 Washington, WTOP FM HD2 Braddock Heights. We'll be right back. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'd like to talk a little bit about getting your first job in IT. This Mm -hmm. is, 
You know, we always get these questions, you know, like here's, you know, we get this, uh, I got this message on Facebook that said, I'm a recent college grad with a business degree and a minor in IT. I have some experience through an internship, but I don't, but I don't have much experience in entry, any entry level jobs. And how do I get IT experience without a job? And then the jobs require IT experience. It, It seems like a chicken and egg and I'm just caught in this thing. Well, I can tell you, John, this, this is a lot. These are questions that we get a lot at um, at Stratford University because we've got, you know, we've got students going through all of our IT programs, both at the graduate and undergraduate level. And here's the misconception that people have about experience. Nobody said the experience had to be paid. You don't have to be paid. Experience are really projects that you have accomplished. And it doesn't matter whether it's paid or unpaid. I've never met an IT uh, professional who didn't have a little IT lab in the house. They would always be tinkering around, installing a different operating system, maybe setting up an Apache server, maybe setting up a virtual machine, maybe uh, maybe you know getting a free account with the with the, with the with the Amazon uh, TensorFlow so they could do. Learn about uh, machine learning. There are so many things that people can do on their own, or they could get a set of of uh, student academic CDs from Oracle that are just for students, and they could set up an Oracle database system. They could set up a Linux database. What you, you find out something you like, or you could go on and take any free courses. And what you want to do is just start working on stuff. And start doing things because if somebody says they're an IT professional and they actually haven't done anything on their own, I don't think they're the kind of IT professional that I would that want. That wouldn't be professional, first of all, right? It, it wouldn't be professional. So you want to get a portfolio of projects. I remember when I wanted to learn programming, um, you know, I just started writing a student information system at Stratford. I wrote our first student information system. Actually, back in the day, I taught myself databases just by writing an application. Hmm. Then I wanted to learn database-driven websites. I, I wrote uh, I wrote our first uh, PHP website. It was a data, database-driven website using PHP as the scripting language, and I just I just linked it in that case to a simple text file uh, database. I didn't even need because we didn't have that much data. I just used a text file for the database, and boom, I learned how to do it. So you want to actually create. A project for yourself that you're interested in doing. And and what you can do, um, you know, if you want to really act like a professional, join a user group. There are a lot of user groups for Oracle, for, for Microsoft, for Linux. They're all over the place. Pick a user group and then work on a project that's related to that user group. And then when you go to the user group meetings, you can talk about your project. You know what's going to happen? People are going to see you working on something. And what they want to see in IT professionals are people that are actually always – always searching, always looking, always learning, and always willing to, to, to do something they hadn't done before, they hadn't done before, even if they don't know how to do it. This is the key to getting a job in IT. And waiting around for paid experience, you're going to wait forever mm-hmm. because nobody's going to hire you. You've got to do it on your own. Now, Ethereum is surging. You know, Ethereum is one of these cryptocurrencies uh, like Bitcoin, and it's really kind of interesting. This, this, these cryptocurrencies were really set up. They were set up as a way to pay people to validate 
a distributed ledger. I mean, this was the beauty when they invented Bitcoin. They they developed this distributed ledger, which is in public. It's multi. It's distributed around multiple locations. Multiple people have to validate any additions to the blockchain, and that ensures that you can't double spend. Uh, a, a, you know, digital currency. It 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 validates that this is a valid transaction, and the distributed ledger was a huge breakthrough. The first uh, the first advancement in accounting since double entry accounting was invented by the Medici's back in the 1300s. But you have to get people, you have to pay people to validate the ledger. So the ledger, distributed ledger, is really the real innovation. But the trick is, you create this cryptocurrency. And you pay people in a cryptocurrency to validate the ledger. And actually, you're just giving them a series of zeros and ones. And then the cryptocurrency, because the way it's set up, it's like mining gold, it then begins to get an intrinsic value. So that's how the whole thing started. And Bitcoin was set up as a proof of concept that this whole idea of a distributed ledger with an incentive to validate it would work. And boom, it worked. And But the problem was Bitcoin was just written as Bitcoin. You, you couldn't apply it to other things. And distributed ledgers can be applied to all kinds of things like supply chain management or land records or health records or anything that requires central repository, central control. You could, you could, apply, to, you could apply to that. And so what, what they did with Ethereum, they, they basically built a scripting language on top of this distributed ledger. And now the the um, the cryptocurrency that Ethereum uses is called an Ether. And so then you get paid in Ethers to, to validate the blockchain. But the beauty is that people can build distributed uh, – they can build uh, – they can build blockchain applications on top of Ethereum using the Ethereum scripting language, and they don't actually have to get involved with all the all the cryptography of actually writing that distributed ledger operating system, which is very, very complicated. So it's a platform for writing applications. So Ethereum is allowing many, many companies to get into the blockchain business. Well, recently, the Ethereum just started shooting up back at, the, at its low point in Ether – and Ether was worth, um, on February 6th, and Ether was worth $103. So since February 6th, it's gone up 34%. So we were saying, what in the world? Why is Ethereum, why are the Ether going up so fast? It's, it's going up faster than Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin during that same period went up 10%. Well, it turns out that Ethereum is getting close to a fork where they're going, where they're basically optimizing the platform so that they can complete a transaction faster. And they, you see, Bitcoin, it takes, they, 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 they validate the blockchain every 10 minutes. They want to go to a validation of the blockchain every two and a half minutes. And so there's going to be a fork in this. And so they are changing the way they do what they call proof of stake. And so they're changing some of the basic ideas. And when they change the basic underpinnings of Ethereum. Since it's open source, they're, they're, they're basically forking. So people are thinking when this fork occurs, there's going to be a surge in the, in the prices. They're also allowing more, they're also increasing the number of Ethers that are available from this fork. So there's, there's, there's a big surge in Ethereum. But I, but I went and looked at the, um, at the, um, at the, annual conference for Ethereum, mm -hmm. and Ethereum is having a problem. Really? Because the, the problem with this validation, they've got this complicated crypto calculation in order to, to validate the block, and it was designed in Bitcoin to be extremely hard, but it takes a huge amount of power to do the validation. For instance, for instance, 
the amount of power that is used to validate Ethereum globally is equal to the amount of power that's used by Costa Rica. What? <laughs> that's how much power it takes. And wow. so if you scale it up faster and faster, more and more power, the amount of power that it takes to validate Bitcoin globally is the amount of power used by Bangladesh. That's crazy. So the, the thing is, it's just it's power hungry. So they have to find a better way to do it. And so they are there. And so, they, you know, the guy who invented Ethereum, he said, look, guys, we've got to come up with a better way to do this. So they're actually searching around to come up with, with better validations. And the trouble is it just it's so hard to do these validations. It just, you know, and, and it turned out Ethereum had a meltdown. They had this game called CryptoKitties. And every crypto kitty was validated with the blockchain, and some crypto kitties had different different uh, colors on them. Some became highly prized. Some of the crypto kitties traded for as much as one hundred and seventy thousand mm. dollars. And it turned out there was so much trafficking on the crypto kitty crypto kitty case craze that the whole network collapsed. And they said, look, this is not going to scale up that we need to, to validate transactions. Like the Visa payment network handles an average of 2,000 cards transactions per second and has a capacity for tens of thousands of cards. Ethereum or Bitcoin could never do that. They have to find a way to scale it. So now what they're looking at, they're looking at some fixes where they're going to partition the blockchain where you, where you just look at a you, – you just validate a piece of the blockchain instead of the whole blockchain – they're looking at a way to let users interact with one another without going to the blockchain, and they don't post their transactions until everything is done with one final transaction. And they're finally doing another way where they're reinventing consensus, where they're going to let proof-of-stake uh, validators put up a bond, and then these validators are going to basically validate these systems without a complicated crypto calculation. So these are three different ways that they're trying to do it. They're trying to reinvent Ethereum so that it can become a real financial item. There you go. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And make certain you check out the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out the programs and tell them you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.